Hello everyone, Brandon Burns, Chief Executive Officer for Peaks Recovery Centers here in the great Colorado Springs, Colorado. Welcome back to another episode. You know I bring all the magic, all the great episodes, the hostess with the mostess, joined by Jason Friesma, Chief Clinical Officer of Peaks Recovery Centers, LPCLAC, all the clinical things, mm-hmm. and Chief Operating Officer, Clint Nicholson, LPCLAC, all of the other clinical things. And today, because of the viewers out there, always curious about more information and insights, I brought these experts on so we can talk about resentment and anger. Okay, why are we talking about this today? Because the terms can often be conflated. Mm -hmm. One might lead to another cause and effect relationship. It also gets us into the discussion of maybe the difference between emotions and feelings. And that's where the clinical expertise is gonna come in, right? We're gonna philosophize a little bit, therapeutically speaking. And so that's what we're doing today. Stay tuned, walk through it, and we're going to present some solutions at the end because that's what we do at Peaks Recovery Center. So here we are, finding Peaks. I brought my notes so I don't get lost (laughs) with these guys so we don't get on tangents, but resentment versus anger. So WebMD, first and foremost. Right, classic. We're going to start with definitions, right? Who to trust more. I originally looked it up. And they were like, you have cancer. I was like, no WebMD. I'm just talking about resentment. So resentment is a negative emotional reaction to being mistreated, according to the old WebMD uh, Mm -hmm. description Mm -hmm. here, right? Um, And in my exploration of resentment and uh, feelings, I think there is a little difference happening here. You guys want to want to test the waters first. Or you want me to continue to give the I, definition. I want. I am really curious to see where no, this is headed. Let's no. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think what comes up in my research around this. Yeah, yeah, for right? sure. Uh, so non non educational, just looking up <laughs> online here, is that uh, the difference between resentment and feelings seems to come down to uh, emotions, like an emotional state, right? So when we have emotions, it's a Maybe we'll have to do some DBT here by the end of this, but Mm -hmm. emotions is sort of an internal thing. I'm having an experience I don't know how to identify, but it feels emotional, right? Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, we're consciously aware of it, where a feeling is, can be something that we are consciously or unconsciously aware of. And so before diving into the two, you know, anger and resentment terms out of this, resentment to me is, similar to like a, tra- a trauma response, right? You have the hardship, you know, somebody did something to you, that formed the resentment. You have the hardship, somebody did something to you, the trauma experience, right? We take on this emotional feeling beyond the hardship itself. And in that way, resentment uh, is what I'm trying to couch here is, is similar to like traumas and experience. It's the takeaway, it's the prolonging of the emotional distress that's taking place from the original event that had happened. Am I right here? Are we on track? Professionals, Jason, yeah. we'll start with you. Oh, okay. Right. Uh, in the, are right. we on track? Chief clinical. Um, yes, we're on track. Next. No, I'm yeah. kidding. Um, I think uh, <laughs> this guy, chief comedian you know, officer right there. <laughs> thank you. Uh, you know, resentments, uh, I, it, it's hard for me to hear that word and not think of AA, I'll be honest with you. Mm. Um, it's a big part of uh, the fourth and fifth step, particularly. From AA, and really, um, and from that lens, like resentments are uh, kind of a building list of uh, well, resentments of of ways that you have been harmed uh, in the past 
that kind of accumulate and create kind of bitterness, well, and anger, frankly, um, is, is how resentments, I think, are viewed through the AA lens. Clint? Well, yeah. So. I was As a resentment about expert. It. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, and an anger expert. Okay. <laughs> I should be asking the questions. That's yeah. why we work so well together. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I guess for me, I look at anger as more of like an acute state, right? It's something that happens in the moment. It's very, it is a, like an acute emotion that kind of flares up and then burns out pretty quickly, as opposed to resentment, which is more chronic. It kind of has this sort of persistent, underlying presence, kind of like trauma, like you, like you were talking about, um, where you've created a narrative off of it, and that narrative is being fed through um, pretty much, I don't know, like resentment requires a lot of energy. It actually takes effort to sort of maintain a resentment and to maintain that anger. So you're constantly looking for validation for why that resentment is still true, and in the end, I think resentment is very disempowering. It uh, gives the other person or the other, um, whoever that resentment is towards or whatever that resentment is towards, it gives, uh, gives them a lot of power because they're basically controlling how you are responding. And yeah, so that's, does WebMD check out? Yeah, I think that's, that. so that was three paragraphs down in WebMD, so you, you, you nailed that. Um, so, yeah, so frustrations, disappointment, hardships, these are like normal aspects of life, right? For sure. The fact that somebody's going to wrong you in this world, you know, when we get into a solution, we can talk about like what is in, you know, what is within and what is outside of our control. But generally speaking, like, and we've talked about this on many episodes already, whether it's trauma, whether it's resentment now or whatever is the issue here, you are guaranteed hardships in this life, Absolutely. right? And that people are not always going to show up in the best way that you expect them to show up uh, in that regard. And so we are going to be wronged in this process. Uh, and then out of that, right, whenever the wrong takes place, it feels like there's an adaptive response to it. I think we tried a while ago to couch anger in some adaptive, I mean, this is like episode six or something, right. <laughs> a long we time ago when we tried to- have grown a lot since yeah. then. When we tried to, yeah, we, we've yeah. grown a lot, yeah. but there, it, it feels, you know, maybe anger isn't the right term of an adaptive response, but like being frustrated about something mm -hmm. might be like an adaptive thing. But when we think about adaptive things, right, we're thinking about something that's protective and provides security sure. against the person that's in front of us. So I suppose in that regard, an angry response that distances us from the harm, right, if that is the mechanism for distance, then we can see that as adaptive to the resentment standpoint, right? We're talking about something that becomes maladaptive in Absolutely. time. We continue yeah. to be anger, angry at the individual, even now, even though they're like physically distant from us and not in a position to harm us in the way that they used to, right? Absolutely. And what's interesting is that not every time, not every moment of anger turns into a resentment, right? So you never, usually there is some sort of insight that you can gain if you do explore your resentment. So I think that that's the one thing that the big book and that the sort of 12-step world does right is it looks at those resentments and it really challenges you to look at like, well, wait, why, why was that a resentment? Why did I attach to that moment of anger? And why did it become maladaptive as opposed to helping me to, you know, like, yeah, create emotional space or to avoid shame or whatever uh, adaptive function anger would usually play in those moments. Mm -hmm. So, well, I think I think 
I'm going to push back, or I don't know if it's pushing back necessarily on what you said, but like I, I do think there's a place for anger for sure. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, anger's great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I practice it every yeah, day. I've never yeah. seen it. Um, but I, uh, I'll trust you on that. Yeah. But I do think, I've never seen it either. Yeah. So. I do think uh, anger, it can also be really disproportionate to situations, sure. right? And I can't remember who said it, but uh, if it's hysterical, it's historical. Uh, is, a, is a saying that I've heard recently, uh, quite a few times actually. And I think that applies to anger. Like if a situation, mm -hmm. uh, you know, like is a kind of a minor, minor violation of, uh, of being infringed upon and the anger reaction is an 8 out of 10, um, that likely is pointing to there's something else kind of going on right. inside of oneself. Uh, and I think um, resentments, I think, don't tend to burn as hot. I think I, I think anger can burn hotter than resentments. It feels like, or right. or be a little bit more prominent, uh, or be resentments can be a little less prominent. I think than anger, um, but they're persistent. Like they're they, persistent. They yeah, burn longer, if not hotter. Yeah. They are, and I think, you know, and I think a lot of a lot about resentment too. I think it comes down to a couple things. Um, kind of the resolution of that, and I don't know what WebMD says about this uh, as a trusted source in resentment and anger, but... <laughs> well, the um, doctors wrote it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. That's, Did they? they um, but okay, doc angry <laughs> doctors. Yeah, PhDs in philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I do think, like, the, re the resolution of anger kind of... or the resolution of resentments uh, involves both kind of looking at yourself and, and figuring out what your own side of the street is and what kind of... Uh, blame and, and maybe shame one is discharging on the resentment, then it also, I think, involves uh, forgiveness as well. Yeah, um, absolutely. So. Well, and I think it's, it's important to differentiate between anger and, like, rage, right? Like, those are, I think we often associate anger with rage, and actually we use rage as, like, this is anger. Mm -hmm. Anger is not that, necessarily. Rage is, like, a, a pretty, it's that 8 out of 10, 9 out of 10 sort of hysterical response to a situation and that is usually actually based in fear. So, um, but yeah, anger is super adaptive. And as long as you know how to, how it works within your own sort of emotional structure, you know, like how it functions within the way that you interact with people, uh, I have a very adaptive form of anger. Yeah, it's always there. Yeah. yeah. Can you describe it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Well, every time. No, I, okay. I won't go. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, for the audience out there, Clint's indicator is if he says the word cool, you know he's leaning into cool. anger. Cool. <laughs> yeah. cool, guys. Cool, 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 cool. cool. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to go walk around the block real fast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So in the, in the clinical sense of things, how do you see, like, uh, uh, this is going to go somewhere more than just the question, but how do you see, like, resentment and anger, primarily resentment showing, I mean, I think patients a lot of the time will show us that anger, you know, kind of front yeah, and center. But how do you see resentment showing up in clinical environments, you know, one-on-one -on -one with the patient in that regard? Well, we, we interesting, one of, one of the activities we do uh, is we literally drop the rock. Um, uh, and it can be, I think we sometimes do it in our grief week, but like uh, dropping the rock, I, I think, comes also as kind of an AA concept. Absolutely. Not to refer back to that again, but like, um, you know, like when we, like there's this metaphor about kind of having a backpack full of rocks basically where you just kind of continue to acquire um, ways that you've been wronged and then carry that bitterness and resentment uh, forward for years and decades. And, 
and all of that. And um, that could get very cumbersome and heavy, I think, over time. And, and clinically, we see it, right? Like people, you know, angry at a, you know, at a teacher, resentful, maybe I should say, at a, at a teacher, someone who wronged them as a child and then upset with the ex-partner uh, from a decade ago. And, mm-hmm. and, and it still carries uh, kind of that emotional heat as if, it, as if a person were wronged uh, very recently. And so I think a big part of our process um, can be to drop those rocks, like to unpack those and uh, figure out how to, which parts, again, a person needs to own and then what they need to kind of forgive and, and let go. I mean, I think with resentments, it's almost like you start to develop a relationship with them and you identify with them. Like those resentments are a part of your makeup almost as an individual. Um, because they require so much energy to maintain over time, it becomes like, your story becomes a part of who you are as a person. So in a clinical setting or in a treatment setting, trying to help somebody identify the parts of themselves that aren't about that resentment, that actually that resentment is um, really not a defining characteristic of who you are as a person, and then kind of working on the process of, you were saying forgiveness, I would call it letting go. I think that you have to actually really learn how to emotionally let go of situations and allow them to be out of your control, uh, which is hard, especially if you're in recovery, uh, early stages of recovery from mental health and substance use. What are the common, you know, high level common justifications from like our patient's perspective of why they're holding on to these resentments? Hmm. Well, I think, I think carrying around resentments can feel powerful. Yeah, I think it gives yeah. a mirage that like, you know, like, uh, you know, the world owes me something or these people owe me something mm-hmm. or I've been wronged and that's kind of why I'm down and, I, and maybe a little bit of that victim um, component. But, um, but really, it, it, like, it, it, it's almost um, a drug in and of itself, I think, where like that power is actually not power. It's actually... Absolutely. Uh, a hindrance. It's uh, it's an anchor, I think, or or um, yeah. I... Yeah, it's a it's a reason to not move forward. Mm-hmm. It's a reason to stay where you are. And um, even though you may be telling yourself that you're a warrior fighting these like injustices in the world, really you're just staying in your resentment, and you're not actually pushing through that or challenging it to or or seeing what the world would be like if you let it go. Because um, because then all of the rocks are dropped. Mm-hmm. You've got, um, and you have so much more room to maneuver. And I guess you can climb like a lot more mountains. Is that the metaphor? Yeah. Oh, it faded off the metaphor. Yeah, it did. Right? Yeah, no, yeah. Yeah, yeah, more so, finding uh, peaks, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, in in you know, in playing into that kind of victim, because it's not just a treatment. Resentment and anger don't exist just within like treatment. Like I think the whole world suffers from it, you know, in a variety of different ways, but it does feel, or it's discouraging to think about it in the terms of like a victimhood mentality, but we are holding on to something, right, out of an injustice. And, and in that regard, I just want to cycle through that again because it's maladaptive. It's not functioning for us, it's not adaptive, it's not providing right. any opportunity for us. Maybe the initial resentment uh, was enough to push the person away to create that safety or whatever it is, but at some point it gets to a moment where it's no longer functioning in the sense there. And you're also holding on to something for which maybe even the person in the background, had they known the resentment existed, because some resentments are held 
seemingly at a level of not like they punched me in the face, but like they didn't say thank you when I walked out of the store, right. mm -hmm. you know, and things like that. Or I wasn't seated at the restaurant within six minutes, you right. know, or this person on Twitter said this, you know, those types of things is where we start to carry all of these things on in sort of a really toxic way. So open-ended, open but. I mean, I think, I think that's, a, that's a really great point. And, and as you were talking about that, I was reflecting on um, when, when I was in private practice, another one of your favorite topics, um, you know, I would get calls from, you know, usually mothers or partners of somebody asking if I did anger management therapy. Um, and so much of anger management therapy is really about kind of exploring what is underneath the anger, in my opinion, like, right? Like, cause there are, there's the justified anger, like we talked about, but that tends to be pretty quick and doesn't tend to get you in trouble really. Mm -hmm. Like if you, if you, if a situation happens and you, and you respond with the appropriate level of anger, like there isn't usually a lot of trouble around that. And so um, I always used to tell people, I don't, of course I do anger management therapy. That's kind of what therapy is, kind of at its heart, is that like mm -hmm. kind of figuring out what is driving um, this response. And then, you know, obviously there are tools and stuff uh, that are kind of DBT type related that uh, where people can kind of learn how to calm down and settle themselves. Um, in those moments, and but again, that does take that self-awareness piece uh, yeah. with anger. No, I think, yeah, I think you guys both bring up a good point that typically with resentment, there's a significant imbalance in the way that the emotions are distributed as far as the person holding on to the resentment and then whatever that individual, uh, whatever the resentment is towards. A lot of times the person who is the um, sort of the target of the resentment is pretty doesn't even really recognize that it's happening, mm -hmm. or it just may not ha be having the same level of emotional impact. So you have this significant, it's, it's really destabilizing, you know, because you're not necessarily living within the scope or like, you're almost like in a different world altogether right. as far as where your emotions are and where you're investing your time and your energy, so, yeah. <clears throat> and yeah. I just want you to know, a lot of the therapy you do makes me angry. So yeah, you are an anger manager. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, that seems a healthy use of anger. <laughs> Completely <laughs> adaptive. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> only in work environments. Right. Uh, and so, in uh, as we've talked about uh, the myth of normal, Gabramante's book, he talks about, and he uses both political figures. We're not going to go into the politics or the political figures, but Trump and Hillary Clinton as showcasing their histories as individuals to highlight that these are traumatized individuals mm -hmm. and that the traumatized is leading the traumatized in this regard. The traumatized is electing those who are traumatized and then in turn we are being led by the traumatized. And we can imagine from there without getting into it, read the book, the dysfunction that can come from <laughs> such a relationship. But I'm bringing it up because there are, there are ways in which in relationships that we're involved in that um, keep this maladaptive energy moving forward. And for me, what comes to mind in like my personal experiences, you know, going back a couple decades now, like, you know, just post high school, I had friends in that way where I was going through a, a what felt traumatic at that time, but I was just learning that I was young and didn't have all the toolkits to like lose a girlfriend at the time. But at the time I was going through something with a girl, but at the time my friends were like, yeah, man, screw, screw her and all that, you know, that type of language, just very supportive of the resentments that I was forming, right? Mm -hmm. And it felt, now I'm in this cycle of sympathy, not empathy, of, mm -hmm. of like, yeah, I'm justified in this response and this behavior. And then I met friends down the road who were like, what's your part in this? 
And I'm like, who are you to, to ask me, what, are you kidding what my part is? Yeah. It's like her fault and these types of things. But what I'm getting at is like, I think those are the most valuable relationships because they stop it in its tracks. And they ask you to consider things outside of it and to put it in, back into a framework of adaptive. Or if you keep talking about this, I'm not going to hang out with you because we need solutions and focus here. And so curious, you know, just maybe a personal experience or just through the lens of you know, sitting with individuals as well too, how often we see people kind of reinforcing these behaviors in our lives. And, and really what I'm just trying to bring up for the viewers out there is just to be mindful where we're in situations where maladaptive behaviors are being reinforced, where it actually feels really good in yeah. the moment. But at the same time, it's only reinforcing something that's only gonna negatively impact us moving forward. Well, here, here's what I thought of when you were talking about this, and I'm gonna, um... Talk about road rage for just a second, and okay. I don't know if you know anything about it, but uh, um, <laughs> feel like it's I'm good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I was here, uh, yeah. <laughs> but I really think, like, somebody cuts you off in traffic, right? It's really a, it's like a, it's like a violation of a one or a two on the anger scale. Like it, it might be a little frustrating, maybe a tap of the horn, or maybe just you slow down and mm. uh, say "gur" and then move on with your day. Um, because really, you know, that person probably caused you to be about two to two and a half seconds later than you would have been right. otherwise. Um, so it's really not that egregious. Now, a person who maybe uh, is having some issues with uh, road rage, again, not talking about anybody in particular, um, like that, a reaction that, like an eight, where like they're hitting the ceiling of their car or maybe <laughs> driving on the shoulder or something to get around them, like... In the moment, that person feels pretty justified in that. Like, it, mm -hmm. their anger is real. Like, I, I want to affirm that. Like, that anger, I, that, the anger is real. Now, it's a misdirected source of the anger, I right. think. And I think what you're saying is that you've had friends in your past who have said, you know what, I think what, what is helpful is when people are like, um, that's a little bit of an overreaction there. Like, what, what part yeah. about that is you? And what part about that is the driver? What belongs to that right. other driver? part of this belongs to you. And we do need people in our lives like that. And I think that's what I think we try to do clinically uh, as therapists to try to help people find that discrepancy. And then, um, you know, once something is conscious, I think that's when we can begin to change it. Um, it's mm -hmm. hard to change, change things we're not conscious of. Um, so, I mean, that, that's my reply. Like, we, we do need friends, like you described. And, yeah. Or sometimes we need even professional guidance in that way. So... Well, all of my friends are professionals, so, oh. yeah. Congrats. Yeah, I only, I only hang out with you guys, yeah. so <laughs> it's by you default. You only live adaptively. Exactly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think that, you know, friendships are an interesting little thing sometimes, aren't they? Uh, oftentimes, you know, friendships really are about providing, like, emotional support, and a lot of times that support is emotional validation, right? Like, you want to validate somebody's feelings, like, oh, my God, that's awful, yeah. like, that must be so hard for you. And the problem with validation is that it very quickly, there's a very fine line between validation and commiseration. And once you've slipped into commiseration, it's just like, man, it feels good. Because everybody gets to get angry. And everybody, like finding that common enemy, like that's a real thing. You know, when you have like something to focus all of that sort of negativity on, it is, um, it's very empowering. At least it feels empowering in the moment. And initially, it, it can be. Um, over time, though, it becomes very disempowering because you've given so much of your energy and so much of your anger and so much of your time and focus to this other person, and they probably don't even 
I mean, when I accidentally cut somebody off going 60 miles an hour in the left lane of the highway, I always wave when I do that. And so I, you know, the person's honking behind me, but I wave, and so I figure everything's good. They probably want to murder me, you know? Yeah. But I'm, I don't, I'm oblivious to that moment. I don't necessarily, I, it, the social uh, moray that I have uh, broken is not nearly as big of a deal to me as it is to that individual. So, yeah, so I think that that is um, my answer to that open-ended question. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, driving, what a great sport out <laughs> yeah. there. Traumatized individuals driving <laughs> among the traumatized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What could go wrong in this scenario, right, <laughs> at the end of the day? And, right. and also, too, like, you know, driving is one of those things, too, that, at least in my experience of road rage, I've talked about on this episode, I'm healing. Uh-huh. And so I can be vulnerable. Yeah, for sure. It, you know, and it, it's, it's not the actual process of driving. It's not the person in front of me. It's not the event there. It's all of this historical stuff that's added up that has led to this moment of snapping. I was so fragile to this right. moment that I broke in a way that it broke into rage, right. right, to be consistent with the language. You literally just described your resentment. Like that is, because it is historical, right? And it is, you have been feeding this narrative a little bit every day. You just give it a little, a little bit of this, a little bit of this, and it keeps it just powerful enough to where all it takes is a moment of vulnerability or where you just don't have full capacity of your, of your emotions for it to actually blow up. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the same you know, thread, not to go into trauma here, but that is what trauma is doing as Absolutely. well, too. It's creating yeah. that frailty, that emotional state, and then it erupts in these settings. And why am I behaving this way? I have no way. Mm-hmm. Process of discovery, oh, it's rooted in that, and that's why I behave in these sort of ways. Um, but this leads to our transition, right? Like, how do we change out of these habits? Because we have so many things that are reinforcing it, right? Mm-hmm. I might form a resentment about somebody hitting me as a benign example, and then I turn on the TV and the politician offended me, and then I call my mom and I walk, and she offends me, and then I go home and my wife offends me and all these sort of things. And now I have this pool of things that have happened to me that create justification to keep moving forward. It's not just the situation, it's the whole world that's resenting me. And I think what we find at peaks, for sure, when individuals arrive um, you know, in a place of, of addictive behavior and that sort of things that we're trying to undo, um, they're at the peak of this moment of buildup, like in their lives, and it's moved into the direction of justifying the habitual use of drugs and alcohol. Well, because I was wronged here in all these situations, and then over time this resentment build up, I'm justified in consuming this because if you were me, right, in the victim sense of things, you might do this too. But we can't live in that way of things, so you know, what are these potential solutions that you know, we can lean into that habituates or recreates uh, reflexivity that puts you know, oneself into a position to really do the hard thing. I think the first hard thing, for example, like coming into a treatment episode is to go into treatment, to yeah. acknowledge at least there's a problem and then give up the thing that's creating any type of safety or security for you in that moment. Well, what happens a couple days after the phenobarb wears off and that type of thing, it's back into the justification for not to be here. Yeah. Uh, in a revert, you know, kind of backwards, right? So this is where treatment is so supportive of this. This is where movement activities, a variety of different things are to our benefit to uh, pursue. And what we're talking about here is just because you remove drugs and alcohol and you make that decision, it's nearly the easier decision when it comes to it. Rehabituating, moving into a position where the next time somebody cuts us off, 
it's not punching the ceiling, but like, err, you know? <laughs> and then it's a err into like a, dang, I just, I'm gonna turn the music up a little bit, yeah. and I'm, I'm just gonna cool down, I'm gonna back off, I'm not gonna flip the person off this time. These incremental right. things that move us in that direction. So the question is, what is the solution for this? Well, the question yeah. is, what are <laughs> solutions? Because okay. there's going to be yeah. right, a variety of different ones. Yeah. But we have to, um, like resentment, right? The easy thing is to say, I'm going to go to treatment. Yeah. Yeah, the, sure. the hardest thing is when your therapist says or asks, what would it be like to forgive the person? Well, I don't want to do That's not why I came here. I'm looking yeah. for other solutions. Right. But really, that's, that's the hard thing. That's what we have to do in this example, at least, right? Yeah, it's, I can't get past the first thing I think that's really important is really working on developing the awareness that there is a problem and, uh, and that the person coming into a program or whatever is part of that solution, right? It isn't about we got to fix the drivers out there in the world or we have right. to, For sure. to fix the red lights and so they all can line up uh, and turn green in front of me. Uh, but really, the, the the thing you like figure out your locus of control basically, and what mm -hmm. what what is within your control, and then what are the things outside of that that um, need to begin to learn how to let go, or accept, I guess. Right. Um, so it's a little honestly, it's a little motivational interviewing of like, uh, you know, again when when somebody in the heat of that moment, like we described, it, it feels like this offense on the road is an eight out of ten, even though. It's probably one out of ten. It's probably just Clinton and his big truck cutting you off right. obliviously listening to NPR or country music. Um, either or true. Sounds about right. Yeah. So, um, yeah. But I think, uh, I think we have to become aware of it, right? And I think I always go to, you know, when, when somebody comes into Peaks, for instance, and they have uh, an opioid addiction, like it's clear what the enemy is, and they have... People have no doubt that like this is creating major problems for me in my life. Um, so they, they don't have to spend as much time being like, hey, heroin's really bad. Well, they kind of know. Like they, yeah. They've been aware of that for quite a while. But when, yeah. when there's these other nuanced things from a mental health perspective, it doesn't even have to be just anger and resentment. Like It takes more time to kind of unpack what's really going on. Like what, We have to turn a, a lot of lights on, if you will, to be like, hey, here are kind of the problems that are that maybe you would like to address. So I think that's mm. the first kind of step in that process. Yeah, man, that's, uh, it's a big question. I, I actually think it's different for everybody and that's kind of a cop-out answer, but um, I think that there is a lot of, I don't know, when you were talking, I was kind of thinking that it's this idea that in the end, all of the power that you need to change your, um, to become an emotionally healthy person is inside of you. Like you, you possess everything that you need in order to be successful on this journey. Mm -hmm. And so every time that knowing that, if you can establish that as like a foundational truth, then every time that an individual looks outside of themselves for an answer or outside of themselves for an ex as an excuse for why they are responding the way they are, you can kind of bring it back to that accountability and be like, no, 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 no. Remember, it's, everything is inside. Like, you have the capacity to be in control right now because that's inside of you. The world around you is chaos and mayhem and, I don't know, maybe pointless, maybe not. Who can say? Um, but it's, that's not the point. The point is what's going on inside and here is within our power. Like, this can be still. This can be peaceful. This can be calm. 
because we can control that. So I think that there is, um, I think mindfulness is really powerful. Mm -hmm. I think um, meditation, movement. Um, I think that spiritual practice is really important, can be really powerful over a long period of time. Um, and again, just this idea that you have to stop giving your power away. Like we give our power away left and right. You know, we're constantly like the, whoever, you know, when somebody gets really mad at me for cutting them off, they gave me a lot of power in that moment. Like all of a sudden I'm in control of their feelings. Yeah. Like, and I don't want that control. <laughs> right. Yeah. Trust me, I'm a therapist. I know how dangerous that is. Yeah. Like, I, um, but like being able to come into this space of like, no, like take back control of your life. Like this is stop letting the world control you and actually, um, we, I think we couch it as accountability, and I think that that has a sort of like blame-shame sort of vibe, but really it is about taking your power back. So in, um, you know, we talked about this before the episode, Clint, but two traditions, right, in the, the Christian tradition, mm -hmm. I think we're looking at Matthew 538, somewhere in there, what? turn the other cheek. Right. Uh, okay. I have turned the other cheek. I don't have. I don't know if that's the exact biblical reference, but it feels familiar from my. Here come the emails. My early, yeah. <laughs> my early schooling teachings. Right. No, you just yeah, really no, made John. some people mad. <laughs> yeah, it was John, dang it. Um, but to turn the other cheek is, is to accept one's insult or predicament without retort. So we have a hardship. We form uh, uh, a feeling about the experience. In this case, you know, maybe somebody slapped us or whatever. We're being asked to turn the cheek, um, to, and to not retort and to be open more than anything, to the fact that we might be slapped again, right? I think yeah. is what it's, what it's taken away here. But to also couch it in sort of Stoic language as well, too, the Stoics were big that nature is a causal feature of the universe, and it's a good thing, but we are not in control of it. We are not in control of our surroundings. And so the only way to really apply judgment to a situation, like being slapped in Stoicism, would be to say that you were in control of the situation in the first place. We can only form a judgment around something we were in control of. If somebody is hitting us or attacking us or cutting us off or slighting us on Twitter, like whatever the case is, what is our control over that moment? Our, I mean, not them, yeah, right? Absolutely. And I, and I think if we, I think what's fascinating about a concept like resentment and anger is we know that the solution is not external, it's internal. Mm -hmm. We sense and we experience that, yet we participate in it wholeheartedly. Yeah and don't move in the direction of positivity, even though these great traditions, spiritual or otherwise, have for centuries given us opportunities uh, to find a pathway forward. And that pathway forward is not the easy thing. It is not the easy option. It is the giving up of the ability to actually resent anything whatsoever. And that's probably gonna be couched, I'm gonna go out on a limb here, in any philosophical, religious, spiritual tradition, we are not allowed to do the easy thing and continue in our misery and the suffering that comes from something like resentment and anger. Absolutely. No, I think that was really, really well said. I feel like yeah. that was a mic drop moment. Absolutely. Okay. Like, yeah. Well, we're not ending it there yet. <laughs> no. So, uh, oh, but I think that's, um, it is a very hard thing to do what is really the easiest thing, which is to just not hold a judgment or hold a grudge, you know? To be able to just sort of let, let go and let live, you know, that is, we are told that that is cowardice, that that is, that we are doing something wrong, that we're not standing up for ourselves, that we're not, um, we're not a strong person, that we are um, being controlled, that we are being victims, and it's actually the opposite of that. Like, yeah. there is a level of irony to this whole thing that is yeah. really, 
really interesting. And um, it really reminds me of Vic, like Viktor Frankl, right? And his, this idea that the only thing you really have control over is your attitude towards the situation. And it's not necessarily about anger and resentment, it's about hope and sorrow. You know, and to, to have like true genuine faith and hope in a situation requires you to let go of the things that you can't control and solely focus on your, your own experience and the things that you do have control over. So no, I thought that was really well said. Yeah, and, and to Victor Frankl's point and, and to your point there as well too, what he's stating, right, is uh, I, I have the opportunity to control like my mental state. Yeah. In controlling my mental state, it will not change the situation I was in. Mm -hmm. He was in a Nazi concentration camp, hard to get out of that. But within that, he could control himself within that environment. Yeah. And I think outside that environment, he carried that forward in a way that was meaningful and giving back in a huge way to, to the world and society. But to the, to the point here, you know, it feels easy to opt out of doing the hard thing and moving away from resentment and anger and that type of thing. So I'm curious, this is kind of just a big question for you guys insert clinical wherever it matters here, but do you guys think that our current society nurtures this path toward habituating these positive responses, or are we in a society that does the opposite of that? I mean, I, I assume that's not a rhetorical question, it's but it feels of kind rhetorical. of rhetorical. Yeah. yeah, like... I set it up rhetorically. Yeah. That's why yeah. It's rhetorical to me, but, but I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm just one human in this big world <laughs> trying to control my resentment, yeah. so... You know, I, I think I may have talked about this once, and I, and I kind of butcher the story, I'm sure, but, you know, Desmond... Tutu's book, talking about the end mm. of apartheid in South Africa and the atrocities uh, that occurred during that. And then, um, like when Nelson and Mandela was put into power and they ended apartheid, they had a like just a huge amount of people that had uh, unfathomable uh, atrocities had been uh, yeah. put upon the people of South Africa, right? And um, and what Nelson Mandela and others figured out is that um, if we try all these people and send them all to prison, like it's going to just create more chaos and actually fan the flames of anger and resentment and, and, and uh, divisiveness. And so what they did um, as a collective and as a nation, they, had, they would bring in people that uh, had committed these atrocities and had them confess to everything they did in the court, and then the court said, you're forgiven, and then moved on. And like, power was, like, it created this really interesting dynamic of like, it showed that a culture, like a society can do it. A society can say, we're gonna choose not to live in anger and resentment, we're gonna choose that. Now, obviously that can't be the case all the time, there's a lot of complications and all that, but like, sure. if that can be done in the, in the face, as an entire nation, in the face of a, apartheid, like that's, I don't know, it seems like we could head in that direction, but to answer your rhetorical question, like, of course, like, we are in the most divisive time of my life. Um, yeah. um, that's where I, full stop. Yeah. No, I think you're, uh, I actually think that it is, I'm gonna use this term human nature loosely, um, not philosophically, so I know that you have like 18 definitions for it, but uh, I think that it is actually, our default setting is to forgive. Our default setting is to have grace for people, to give them the space to be. Um, I think that it's an easier way of living. I think that it's a more uh, 
peaceful way of living. I think, like, internally peaceful. I think that it is, when you talk about, like, wellness and self-care and when you talk about happiness and prosperity, usually it's somebody who is on that path, on the path of grace and, uh, and is able to sort of see the world for what it is and allow it enough space to be imperfect. Um, culturally, I think, particularly in Western and American culture, we, we go Old Testament with our belief system and we have this eye for an eye sort of need, like that we have to have retribution for whatever injustice was done to us. It, that means I am justified in doing the exact same amount to this other person. Like I need, what I, my job is to cause the same amount of pain and anger or the same amount of distress in their life that I experienced in mine. And that is a really um, unhappy way to live. And it, is, uh, it keeps people trapped in trauma. It keeps people reinforcing and living in these resentments because it, it allows you to keep energy flowing into that, to those old stories, into those old beliefs. Um, and it never allows you to actually break free. I mean, they're shackles as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Like it is, it is really... Uh, yeah, it's not great, and I think the more we are, the more divisive we've become over the last several years, and um, I think we get further and further away from what I would what I would identify as like actual happiness. Yeah, the and you know, uh, I think it was uh, All Quiet on the Western Front. That's what I yeah. challenged you to, to watch recently, yeah. and it's a. Uh, you know, World War I movie that is on the side of the German soldiers. So this is pre-Nazism, of course, in World War I. Um, sometimes this gets conflated in, in the world that like all wars were the same and the all people driving it. But what was powerful about that movie for me was I'm sitting on the front lines with German soldiers. Yes, they caused the word. Yes, there is this sort of retributive justice that should be taking place. But very quickly within it, my experience was, and maybe it was yours, Jason, that like, these are people, and there is this higher sort of political thing going on that's driving the war, but these people on the front lines, and this is, you know, Sebastian Younger talks about it too in the Afghan war and so forth, like, even American soldiers aren't fighting for, like, who's in power at the time, and I'm fighting on behalf of the, you know, Ameri they're fighting for each other because they're trying to survive yeah. a, mm -hmm. a pretty hard situation they've found themselves in. And so that's the thing that carries them through, not the politics or the stories or the rhetoric that's going on uh, throughout the world. And that was my appreciation of the film. But then the film comes out, and then all of this you know, sort of negativity comes around it of like, oh, we're just reinforcing these terrible behaviors that took place and, and sympathizing and empathizing with these people who caused such atrocities in the world. And like, yeah, to the retributive sense of things, I get where the attitude comes from, but it was easier for me watching the movie just to start forgiving people and to think yeah. like these were just people put into a situation and in the beginning of the movie like you know they go into it they're not trying to fight for anything other than like a plot they think they're going into something exciting yeah. mm -hmm. and then they get there and find out it's pretty detrimental and unforgiving and they lose all their friends in the process uh, and so that's a journey of empathy for me but the world wants to say something about well they caused it and they started it so we're just going to hold on to that resentment and we're not going to allow sympathy for this you know situation and so it is rhetorical to me in that sense of things that yeah. this is generally what we do as a society we don't find time for that forgiveness and to move forward and, and move beyond the situation even though we have great exceptional people like Viktor Frankl that yeah. have turned around and done just that mm -hmm. and in living in the most dire hardship 
you know, type situations, coming out on the other side and finding it within their heart and mind to find forgiveness mm -hmm. uh, for individuals, to do the absolute challenging thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, and Victor Frankl is like one of the most powerful figures because I, it's hard to think of a tougher thing to go through <laughs> than what he went through, and he was able to find it. And if he can find it, why can't we Absolutely. find it, right? That's so easy route. So likely what society is providing, and I think that's where we get hit within treatment episodes. Now I've arrived at peaks. You guys help people right now fix it, right? Like yeah. we're going to do the easy thing. We're somehow going to sprinkle the cognitive behavioral therapy, the DBT or whatever onto you. I think what that does in its biggest way is provide that awareness that you were talking about earlier. But the hardest thing you're going to do after that is take those tools and actually go out into the world and pursue them one step at a time because we're not going to go from awareness to healing yeah. you know, overnight, but it seems like the happy life, the fulfilled life, the purpose-driven life is something that invites difficult situations in. Mm -hmm. And one thing I think about is like in college, I would go to ratemyprofessor.com, which is blasting all these you know, poor tenured <laughs> professors out there, but at the end of the day, I was choosing the two-star professors. Why? Because I felt like they were going to challenge me more. You know, especially in the School of Philosophy, it's a humanities credit. Some people just need to do a humanities credit, mm -hmm. and I, they think, okay, I'm going to do you know, philosophy of ethics or whatever, and that's going to be an easy A, and I'm going to get out. And then they get the hard-ass professor who's like, you're in an ethics course, and you're going to take it seriously. And mm -hmm. we're not doing benign you know, papers here, and I'm going to give you a C if you give me this. Well, they get the C, and they get pissed, and they write that. To me, it was like, I want to do the hard thing. I wanted to learn philosophy. I wanted to expand my mind and my opportunity. Why not? I was in that sort of situation. and so. To me, it makes sense that, you know, in my running marathons, running a business, working every day with you guys, like, this is hard shit <laughs> uh, at the end of the day. <laughs> working in treatment, and this isn't to, like, be a victim of it. It's, it's rewarding work. It doesn't lead to victimhood, but it is fucking challenging work um, each and every day. And, it, and I think our general experience is, right, we share these company-wide emails where we have success stories. We also have non-success stories, but within those sex success stories, it's really invigorating and empowering. It reinforces what we do. It shows us why we're doing the hard thing at the end of the day as opposed to, you know, I don't, I don't want to undermine any job out there, so I'll stop there. But do you guys sense that, you know, that the hardest part is the most rewarding, is the most purpose-filled thing? Always. Like, I think that's what we've built our entire program on, is it, doing the hard thing. Like, we... Ask our clients to do hard things. Yeah. We ask our staff to do hard things. Yeah. Um, isn't and it's a, what makes us excellent, I think. Yeah. And in a way, too, that's what makes recovery so rewarding because yeah. it was fucking hard. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, in this field, like being, being a therapist, like, I mean, I, I'll tell people that I feel like I went to grad school to learn how to not judge people. Hmm. It is the hardest thing to not walk into a situation with judgment. Or if you do, to identify that you have judgment look inside, figure out why, work through that, compartmentalize that, and then show back up again in a way where you can see and meet the individual for who and what they are and have an actual unconditional um, acceptance of that human being. It is tough because there, there are some wounded people out there, and the more wounded, the, the harder it can be to find that connection. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, what else are we here for? Like, it just yeah. seems like everything else seems kind of, I don't know, just like, whatever. I, this seems pretty powerful. And it's, um, yeah, I mean, it just, and it never stops. You know, it never stops. 
and for all the viewers out there, I think this is a, as we kind of take it out here, this is a common thread in, in the experiences, right? When, you know, going, I've talked about on this episode, Jason participated in, you know, you sent me to the, do the trauma work July of 2019. You know, I'm 36 years old, I believe at that, 35 years old at that time, and I was not a runner at that moment. I wasn't any of those things. It took 30, another year even, 36 years to discover running as a benefit for like my life uh, in that regard. And so I was going to the gym originally before I figured out you could run anywhere and stepping on the <laughs> treadmill for the first time, but just stepping into a gym when you feel shame, when you feel insecure, mm -hmm. when you feel like I'm fat, I'm unworthy, this is never gonna work. Um, that self-doubt creeps in almost immediately, and I step on that machine for the first time, you know, 11 miles per hour or whatever, you know, right now it feels like a walk, but at that time, I was exhausted, and I felt fucking stupid doing it. You know, excuse my language to the audience out there, but I think it just reinforces how we commonly experience growth. The first time we step into unfamiliar territory, I'm gonna stop presenting people today, I feel stupid about that. Absolutely. I'm losing some, I'm giving up something right in the process. And I just want to acknowledge that feeling because we're not talking about here at Peaks anything other than doing something that is absolutely challenging and difficult. It will be hard. It will be painful, both mentally and physically. But the promise at the end of it, right, is that if you put that foot forward, you're going to incrementally feel better in time to the point where now at 38 and a half years old, wherever I'm at in this age <laughs> framework, right, I'm running the best that I've ever done. But also within that, I'm pushing myself to not just be in this sort of place of mediocrity in the way that I consider my running experience. I'm constantly pushing myself. And to go from an eight-minute mile to a seven to a 6.30 mile is painful. And everything in my body and my mind at times is saying, don't do it. Shut it down. Yeah. Go upstairs. Eat. You know, do anything other than you're doing. Um, and I think that resonates for me and something I wanted to share with the audience and see if you guys have any other feedback or you know, things you want to share about, you know, maybe even the journey that you're on spiritually, Jason, mm -hmm. as well, too, about the difficulty of just taking that first step forward and then continuing, because it's not easy. Yeah, it is. I mean, I think, Brandon, I think, I mean, it's interesting that we've taken resentment and anger and like pivoted to like uh, this part. And I think, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm certainly on a spiritual journey, and we've alluded to it the last couple of weeks on here. But I think, um, I think Peaks is on this a little bit too, as we're really trying to, you know, even continue to round out what we're doing, what we're offering clients, and and since we are asking them to do really hard things, like they they need the support. I think of having uh, a good basis in kind of like what is the meaning of all this, and what's what's uh, what is my place in the world and in, in, in what are my spiritual values and beliefs and what does my existence mean and all those sorts of things. But like these things matter. How do I find this yeah. meaning and purpose? And um, so I feel like I'm on a little bit of a parallel journey in, in that way as well as um, I continue to explore this through my own middle age actually. So um, yeah. Cool. Yeah, the later stages of middle age. Yeah, they, yeah, yeah. Latter middle age. Yeah, latter yeah. middle age, elderly yeah. middle age. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think, um, you know, I had a uh, an instructor. It was I was taking a Buddhist philosophy class like in my a million years ago, and I was doing my bachelor's in New York. And it was um, one. She said something to me that was so that has always stuck with me. Mm. And uh, or she said something to the class rather. And she just said every. Anytime that you are doing something because of a principle, you should probably stop. Principles are rigid. Principles are um, void of 
context most of the time, and they will um, typically lead to suffering. She said, don't live with principles, live with purpose. And because purpose has that, there's this connection piece, right? Like you have, you're connected to the world around you and it can be, and it's fluid and it changes and it has room to sort of expand and contract. And um, I think that that, it's probably the only thing I remember from actually that first year of college, but it was really powerful. <laughs> and um, I think that it, it has been, it's something that I still, uh, kind of a mantra that I still tell myself and it's something that I still really live by. I think, um, you know, once you start forgiving, I will say this, it does get easier. You know, like once you can let go of some of those big resentments um, and especially the resentments that you have towards yourself, those are, those are tough. Um, but once you can start having that level of forgiveness, it, it gets a lot easier. And um, yeah, you won't ever go back. Yeah. yeah. I think of, uh, I, I want to make sure I get his name right here, the, the Rich Roll podcast. The reason I'm pointing it out is, you know, one, he's in recovery, and I love that about his journey and his podcast. But two, his whole podcast is dedicated to, like, what we're talking about here. And I just wanted to bring that to the viewers because, right, check it out. It's an amazing podcast about these topics that we're talking about, how to motivate, bringing you know, leaders from all over the world, athletes from all over the world, and all these people have accomplished tremendous things. You will hear in every single story that it was difficult, it was painful, it was the pain cave, it was the most impossible thing I thought I was doing in the very beginning moments of it. And Mel Robbins, one of the guests on it, I love her energy, just the tenacity uh, and, and that she brings is, is really great, but she has a sort of a statement that she tells herself in the moment of hardship, the thing that I am going through right now is preparing me for something in the future. I don't know what that is. I don't know how it's gonna come about. I don't know what that looks like, but right now this is the moment and I'm gonna live with it, I'm gonna hold on to it because it's preparing me for this next thing. And I think for me and what we go through kind of at work, especially recently and all these types of things, it's, it's not something I've always been aware of or been telling myself, but it's been really powerful. And these anecdotes, I think, can be really powerful when we're struggling and going through things as a process. And so to that point, the more we read, the more we listen, the more we open our hearts and minds to solutions and strategies, of all the people who've gone through things that we seemingly look at and say, wow, it looks easy for them. It started with a hardship uh, in that regard. And so I think incorporating that into this is a, is a really big part of getting well, whether it's out of resentment and anger, trauma, or whatever's going on, right? We need people to support us and show us that there's a path forward uh, in a world in which sometimes it's easy to sit down and commiserate, so. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, with nice. that then, folks, we're yeah, going to take it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah two absolutely. mic drops. I'm not going to yeah. pass this one up. So, <laughs> yeah. I just want to thank everybody again uh, for yeah. joining us today on the special episode of Finding Peaks. Always my favorite yeah. co-host, guest. Just a guest. Just guest yeah, on here. Just a guest. At yes. the end of yeah. the day, yeah. love hanging out with you guys. Yeah. Um, I, this is always just a, a reprieve sometimes from the intensity of our work <laughs> environment. Absolutely. So it's, it's nice to come on here and, and just chat and roll through things in an authentic way and not have to you know, fight, you know, people about it in the process. Um, and to the viewers out there as well, too, it's also a reprieve just to come in here and talk to you. And we hope that we've delivered something special today in regards to resentment and anger, as silly as that sounds, solutions for it uh, at the end of the day. But signing off here, Brandon Burns, Chief Executive Officer for Peaks Recovery Centers. Find us on the TikToks, the Facebook, the Twitters, all of our accounts, 
are more positive than all the other accounts on there. So check us out. <laughs> we'll put up some quotes, these positive things to help people forward, uh, but also opportunities to um, see what we're doing, what we got going on, future podcasts, these types of things. And uh, I think it's information at findingpeaks.com. Coover, if I messed it up this time. Questions. Questions, questions. at findingpeaks.com. Coover, save me. That's it. <laughs> questions at findingpeaks.com. Thoughts, ideas, all those things. Send them to us. That's where these episodes come from. Resentment, anger. It's about you, the viewers, at the end of the day. Appreciate you so much. Until next time.